Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This episode there's a second story about the elves in Scottish border ballads. If you haven't listened to the first in the series, maybe check out last episode, but it's not absolutely essential as the stories are standalone. And so, the Ballad of Tamlin. The warning to Janet was very clear. You young maidens are forbidden from going into Carterhoe Woods, for Tamlin is there. He waits at the well. And none go there without him taking their green mantles, their gold rings, or else their maiden heads. Uh-huh, said a barely listening Janet. Hang on, what was that last bit again? For in Carterhoe Woods, Tam Lynn is to be found. No, the, the other bit, the, the maiden head bit? And no one can go there without him taking their green mantles, their rings, or else their maiden heads. Right. Ooh, awful stuff. Terrible. Um. Thanks for the heads up. I've just got something to do, you know. Young woman stuff, you know. Be back soon, but don't wait up. And with that, Janet sets straight off for Quarterho Woods. Janet, daughter of the Lord of Carterho, was a young woman who knew what she wanted and was determined to go about getting it. A short while later, Janet arrived in the woods. She had braided her hair, and her skirt was strategically pinned up just above knee level. There was a horse in the woods, a horse that was in some indescribable but very definite way different from usual horses. Tam Lynn's horse. But of the disreputable character, there was no sign. Janet had a hunch. Near the unnatural horse were some lovely roses. Janet picked one, and then a second. And as the stem snapped on the second rose, Tamlin suddenly stood before Janet. Some women, help, some people, might have been afraid at this sudden materialisation. But not so Janet. Instead, she regarded Tamlin. He was a young man of about Janet's age. He looked mostly human, though by his arrival and reputation, Janet knew he was one of the other folk, the elves. Pluck you no more roses, Janet said the elf. Why will you pluck the flowers? Why do you break the branches of this bush? And how darest you come here without my command? Janet wasn't phased. Coolly she replied to the rebukes. My father owns this land, and he has given it to me. I may pluck roses as I wish, and I may come and go without asking leave of you. Is that so? Tamlin stepped closer to Janet. It most definitely is. She stepped closer to him. Well, he said, looking Janet straight in the eye and stepping closer to her still. Well, said she, with equal determination, meeting his gaze steadily and stepping so close she was pushed up against the elf and their noses almost touched. So. So. And as Janet takes Tamlin's hand, the narrative camera pans back from the pair until all that can be seen 
with the green leaves of the trees around them. And cut to a month or two later. Janet is back at the castle and playing some kind of ball game with 23 other women. Because life's pretty good if you're the daughter of the local lord and can while away your days in endless leisure with your posh friends. But as she played, she felt herself becoming tired much faster than usual. Just going to sit this one out, guys. Carry on without me, would you? And she sat herself down on the medieval Scottish equivalent of the bench, which was probably a bench of some kind still. A while later, Janet had still not recovered, so the group decided to pack the ball game in and instead changed to playing chess. Now, how 24 people play chess, I'm not really sure. Maybe they had a league system going on with 12 games happening simultaneously, or maybe they teamed up around one chessboard and cheered each other on. No idea. But they took to chess. Thanks guys, said Janet. But sitting herself down, she felt no better. She was pale, sweating slightly, and beginning to feel quite unwell. In fact, she suddenly felt like she was going to throw up. She ran for the place people threw up before reliable indoor plumbing. And at that point, the gossip began. Word travelled quickly in the small world of the castle, and doubly so when 23 people had just jumped to the same correct conclusion, and it wasn't long before Janet found herself summoned to see her father. Some dads, those with a more personal family touch, might have had a quiet chat about the whole thing. But this was not Lord Janet's dad style. No, he was more of a managerial type. And if there was important conversations to be had with your daughter, they would be had in the same way as with any other of the many subordinates who inhabited the castle. An audience in the Great Hall. An audience in the Great Hall provided a comfortable environment where everyone felt free to air their views under the non-judgmental eyes of their colleagues and peers. Now, Lord Janet's dad didn't see himself as a dictatorial type of figure. He was the kind of manager who would let the team make the decision and just guide them where he could. So, I imagine him opening the meeting. Has anyone got anything they'd like to bring to this session? One of the old knights was first to pipe up. She's gone and got herself with child, hasn't she? And who do you think will get the blame? Us lot. He indicated his fellow knights. There were nods. Janet glared at the man, and barely had he finished speaking when she shot back with, Shut up, you stupid old knight. I can categorically guarantee that whoever fathers my child, it could never possibly be you. Ooh, burn, chorused the assembled courtiers. Feeling the mood was getting somewhat heated, the mild-mannered Sir Janet's dad interjected. Mildly, as was his way. But, and sorry to interrupt, Janet, but you do seem to be with child. Janet gazed around the room at the various lords, many of whom had managed to convey messages to it clandestinely since her condition became known. Those messages contained propositions to the effect that to them it mattered not who the baby's father was, but that they would personally volunteer to selfishly take responsibility for this situation in order to help avoid a scandal and out of simple concern for her well-being. And then, of course, the Lord and Janet would have to get married, there could be a wedding and all the things that came with that. It'd be great. Several of those lords were now trying various combinations of eyebrow raising, winking, and other facial contortions to let Janet know the deal was still on. Janet ignored them all. I may be with child, but let me be very clear. 
There is no laird within this castle who shall give this child his name. My lover is an elven lord, and I wouldn't trade him for ten of these men. And at that she turned, and out of the hall she strode, leaving the lairds all a-bristling, and the ladies whispering under their breath, words to the effect of, You go, girl. There was an awkward pause. Well, said Janet's father, mildly, I think that went pretty well. And he gave a nervous little laugh. For all her determination not to give in to the sleazy mechanisation of the lairds, Janet knew the limits of the society she lived in. She was strong-willed, yes, but, however unrighteous it was, trying to raise a bastard child on her own would bring grievous consequences for herself and her whole family. She had options, though none of them were good, and she did have a plan. And so, with grim determination, she set off again for Carterher Woods, with two things in mind. Firstly, as was only right, she would seek Tamlin again and tell him what she intended. Secondly, she would acquire the herbs of which her nursemaid had told her and see how effective they were. She arrived to find Tamlin away again, but his horse grazing contentedly, and like last time she started to pick the roses. No sooner had she picked the second than he appeared. Her pulse quickened to see him again, but when her eyes met his they contained nothing but composed resolve. He knew. Be it by intuition or by more supernatural means, but he knew, and his demeanour became as serious as Janet's. Why do you come here again, picking at the roses, and intending to rid yourself of our child-to-be? Ugh, do not ask me such questions. How can I have a child of me, a Christian woman, and you an elf of the woods? If you have a better suggestion, I'm all for it. But I'm not seeing one. Tamlin gave a deep sigh. It was backstory time. Janet, do not be deceived, for I am no elf. No, in fact, in my origins, I am, quite conveniently, of the most noble Christian Scottish heritage possible. My grandfather was Lord Roxburgh. It was with my grandfather that I was out hunting one cold day. A storm came upon us suddenly, and soon I became separated from the others. My horse panicked, and I was thrown from it. But the Queen, she caught me and I have lived with the fairies ever since, almost as one of them, but I am not one of them. For those listeners who heard the previous episode, and are wondering if Tamlin's time passed in a few days like Thomas's, the short answer is that we don't find out. But I'm going to hazard a guess that it didn't, as Tamlin has seemed able to enter the human world to some degree, and has spent considerable time becoming one with the fairies so I reckon we're dealing with just time passing the same for everyone here. File this one under these stories having similarities, but aren't entirely compatible in the way in which a strict modern canon might demand. Anyway. Tamlin's tale complete, Janet mulled over the newfound knowledge that her love was human. She was thinking something like, Great, this is perfect, we can be together, and then... But because she's pretty sharp... Her thoughts drifted towards, hang on, if this is the case, why didn't you tell me first of all? And why are you even hanging around a well anyway? What's the problem? 
Tamlin nodded. Now, the fairyland is nice and everything. Good parties. Great parties. Parties, really. Can't complain. But they have this, uh, how can I be culturally sensitive about this, this custom. You see, every seven years they are bound to pay a tithe to hell. And I, a handsome young man, and not a little modest with it, am bound to be the payment. Well, that sounds like a fairly nasty fate, but can't you just flee? Tamlin shook his head sadly. Not exactly. The Queen has me within her power, but... Paused. There is a way. It's a bit complicated, though. You see, tonight is Halloween, and so, as is the custom, at midnight the fairy host will ride down to Miles Cross. Amongst them will be a great many elvish knights, all on horseback, and I will be in their number. I will be riding on a white horse, and I will be the closest to the town, which, let me tell you, is actually a pretty coveted spot to be in. It's kind of my privilege for having been a knight on earth, actually. Don't mean to brag, but they can respect me. He thought a bit. Well, apart from that whole willing to give me up to the beasts of hell bit, which, yeah, not going to lie, when I found out about that, my pride took a little bit of a hit. Anyway, let the first company pass by. Then let the second company pass by. And then I'll be there, in the third company, on a white... Yep, already got that, said Janet. Okay, I'll be wearing a glove on my right hand, but none on my left. I'll comb my hair down and tilt my hat, so you'll definitely know it's me. Right, okay, I will definitely be able to find you, but I'm probably going to not go for the gloves as the first thing to identify with, if I'm being totally honest, said Janet. Well, then you'll have to grab me and drag me from my horse. Wrap your cloak around me and hold on tight, as tight as you possibly can, because then the fairies will use their magic to turn me. First, they'll make me into a snake then a bear, and after that I'll become a terrifying lion. But hold fast, do not fear, and do not doubt. Next, should you be holding me still, I'll become a lump of red-hot iron, sizzling at the touch. And when I am so, throw me into the well-water with all your might, and I will turn back into your knight, free from the queen and from hell. How have you found out about all of this? How do you know exactly what will happen in such incredibly specific detail? What's to stop the Queen just taking you back? Or the whole troop of elves stopping me as I grapple with you? And why don't you just get down from the horse yourself? Were all questions that Janet decided not to ask. Instead, she summarised. So, if I've got this right, you want me to take a bucket of well water to Miles's cross tonight and wait for you there at midnight where I must hide from the elven soldiers until I see you on your white horse. And without a glove on my right hand, Tamlin interjected. And without a glove on your right hand. Then I must bodily force you from your horse and hold you tight as you turn into various horrific beasts in my arms, finally becoming a burning piece of iron before I plunge you into the water. Well, you will do basically nothing to assist, while I risk my life simply from what you will become, Never mind the wrath of the Queen, the Elven soldiers, and maybe even these fiends of hell itself. Uh, while pregnant, and as already noted, quite ill with it. Yep, that's basically it. Tamlin looked down and kicked his feet nervously. 
Okay, great. Just wanted to make sure that I got that clear. Let's get to it, said Janice, already starting to make plans. Because if you somehow fail to notice, Janice is an absolute hard-as-nailed badass motherfucker. So, they parted, and that evening Janet set out from the castle alone again. I imagine her passing the guards, them challenging her. Out again? At night? Alone? On Halloween? Janet flashed her best, what are you going to do about it, smile at them. And the guards stepped aside. Her destination was Miles Cross, a little way out of town, but first by the well to fill a bucket of water. There was no one around, for in their bed citizens cowered, terrified of the spirits that abounded on this unholy night. But though the night was dark and gloomy, Janet felt no fear and never wavered in her resolve. Eventually she made her way to Miles Cross, and there she waited. After a while she thought she heard the faraway tinkling of tiny bells, as of on a bridle. And then, quite suddenly, the gentle sound became a sudden rush as the fairy horde all together appeared at the witching hour. The ringing of the bells, the snort of the horses, and the deep rumble of their hooves against the grass filled the night with a roar of sound. In her hiding place, Janet steeled herself. The first company passed her by ever so close, but she stayed still. Then the second company came right up to her hiding place, and she barely dared to breathe, but they too went on. And now the third company was passing her, and there was the white horse and Tamlin atop of it. She hadn't time to notice anything about gloves. And Janet jumped out as fast as she was able, grabbed a tight hold of Tamlin, and with all her strength dragged him from the horse and back towards her pail. Commotion rippled through the ranks of Elvish cavalry, and the supernatural regiment turned their horses towards Janet. And as their gazes fell upon her, the transformations began. The man wrapped in a cloak changed, its shape twisted, and what was Tamlin was now a monstrous snake between her arms. Its jaws opened wide, its tongue darted out, and it hissed menacingly. But Janet kept hold. And then, from the sides of the snake, burst first one huge hairy arm and then another, grasping the air with razor-sharp claws. And now Janet was being crushed by the weight of the bear, so much bigger than herself. Her arms were now apart, and she could not even reach around, but she kept hold. And under her, the shape of the animal changed again, and though she couldn't see it, she held on tight. Janet had never encountered a lion, but when it gave its mighty roar, some deep ancestral fear was triggered. A primal terror rose in Janet on this Halloween midnight, reaching back, back through the centuries, through the millennia, to the very first humans on the plains of Africa. And she was scared. But Janet denied all the instincts that told her to let go and run. She thought of her baby, of Tamlin, and she held on tight. And then, quite suddenly, her arms were burning. The pain was incredibly intense. But Janet resisted the urge to fling the burning iron away. But even as her skin blistered, she carefully dropped it into the bucket of well water, whereupon it hissed, and in the steam became a naked man, who immediately dropped to the floor, exhausted but alive. 
Janet went to him and wrapped him in her green coat and felt joy burst inside her. But by this time the fairy queen had come forward and brought her horse up to the united couple. From its heights the queen looked down at Janet with eyes full of rage and fire. Curses on you for stealing away my sacrifice! Janet met the queen's gaze as unflinchingly as she did any other. And you! The queen turned her gaze to Tamlin. If I was to have my time again, I would pluck out your eyes and replace them with coals and take that flesh heart of yours and put a wooden one in its place. And with those words she turned her fairy troops with her and they vanished into the night, leaving Janet triumphant with her prize. And that's all folks. Janet wins, gets Tamlin, the Queen is defeated and though it isn't stated explicitly, let's assume they lived happily ever after. So, like Thomas the Rhymer, the story of Tamlin, Tomlin, Tomalin, or other various variations was originally a ballad. As a ballad it was designed to be sung with rhymes I've not included here, and it would have been transmitted orally. It's an old story, references to it go back to the 16th century, and it's possibly even earlier still. As with stories transmitted in this way, there are a number of versions of it knocking around, which were collected together and written down by our old friends, 19th century folklorists. In the case of Tamlin, a version was collected by Walter Scott, a figure predominant in collecting Scottish ballads. However, the story is better known as part of the Child's Ballads, a collection of English and Scottish ballads compiled in the latter half of the 19th century. The term child may be confusing, as it refers not to children, but to James Child. He was an American folklorist who used his position as the very first professor of English at Harvard to collect a huge anthology of ballads, including their history and many different versions available. The child ballads are now a kind of master collection of folk songs collected at this time. And somewhat misleadingly, a great many of the child ballads are not really considered to be suitable for children, as with Tamlin. The music for many of these ballads was recorded in the 20th century, and they have gone on to form a large section of the corpus of British folk songs. Tamlin is no exception, and the most famous version is probably that recorded by the influential folk band Fairport Convention. If you Google it, you can give it a listen. Child mulls over the origins of Tamlin somewhat. He finds similar folk tales in Sweden, Denmark, and even Crete, and also in the ancient Greek legend of Peleus and Thetis where Thetis is a shape-changer who the male hero must not let go. However, while there are undoubted similarities, there's no evidence of direct links, and in certain of its themes, in particular the protagonist being female, Tamlin stands as a somewhat unique story. Now, there are some variations to the versions. One of the most common ones has the first encounter between Tamlin and Janet in the forest being told as non-consensual. However, the rest of the story kind of continues in the same way, and Janet's willing to fight for her love. So, from my eyes, that didn't really make a huge amount of sense. I think it's maybe a device for certain storytellers who felt that having a woman seem to be wanting sex was just too much for their delicate audiences, and they introduced rape instead. The consensual version I've just told is, however, the far more common story. Tamlin clearly shares a lot of themes with the subject of last episode's podcast, Thomas the Rhymer. 
Tom's the Rhymer is itself a child ballad, and it also features the Queen of the Fairies who abducts men and the aspect of a tithe to hell. The conflation of elves and the diabolical, which is frequent in stories concerning them, ties what could be a non-religious story clearly into Christian mythology, possibly combining elements from both Christian and non-Christian traditions. In Tamlin, the liminal Halloween setting also displays the links with Christianity, while it also shows something that's outside the usual world that a good Christian would inhabit. The two stories are set only a few miles apart in the same area of the Scottish borders, and in some versions of Tamlin, there's actually a walk-on part for Thomas the Rhymer, though he doesn't really do very much, so I kind of dropped that bit. Like Thomas, the areas mentioned in Tamlin are real historical places. However, in different versions, they do get moved around a bit. Tamlin's assuredly noble Scottish heritage is in some case Roxburgh, but in others Kirk, Murray, Forbes. However, as I indicated when telling the story, though there are similarities, the difference between the conduct of the Queen in Thomas and in Tamlin is particularly striking. While she abducts Thomas, she does seem genuinely to like him, and saves him, and gives him gifts, while in Tamlin she's desperate to sacrifice him, and her regrets at the end are particularly vicious. In my own head canon, I combine the two stories. Maybe Tamlin is the Queen's second lover, but she's made herself hate him, so this time she actually has something to give to hell. However, there's no indication these stories are meant to belong in the same fairy, queen, court, canon, really. And in fact, her actions suggest they rather do not. Once again, the story raises more questions than it answers about the fairies, their relationship with hell, what exactly it is that the fairy queen wants, and why the very specific ritual that Janet goes through takes Tamlin out of their power. And I kind of like it that way. But enough about the elves, because they aren't the bit about this story that makes it interesting for me, really. Because just as Thomas the Rhymer was not much about Thomas, the story of Tamlin is really all about Janet. And she is a super interesting character. Those first lines of the story where she is warned off going into the woods because Tamlin will take her maidenhead, and her immediate reaction of, I'm going to go get me some hot elf action, were not something I invented, even though I might have paraphrased them slightly. But they do exist in most of the stories. She is definitely out to get the man, and the story continues throughout to invert the usual male-female roles in these kind of stories. Tamlin is at heart a story about a woman rescuing a knight. It's not even done through some application of supposedly feminine traits, but by pure courage and physical strength. The man is the sexual prize to be won, and the woman the warrior who fights for him, and takes absolutely no shit along the way. These elements seem rather unusual in a 500-year-old folktale, though perhaps it is to some degree my perception of what those tales are like that is incorrect. When we set this with the tale of Thomas the Rhymer, we have two stories of women protagonists taking their own path while simply sweeping along the man after who the tale is named in their wake. And that's it. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it, and if you have, then please do join us next time when I'll be keeping true to the podcast's theme by switching stories entirely to move from Scottish medieval fairies to tell a tale from Irish mythology. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.